All right, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how to collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Anthony Zeng, who is the creator, the co-founder of VinoVest. Anthony, welcome to the show. How's it going? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I remember when we first connected a little bit ago, uh, I thought the idea was awesome, and now I'm super stoked to have you on the pod. So with that, let's just kind of get into uh, what are you working on at VinoVest? What is it? VinoVest is the easiest way to invest in fine wine. Um, So we provide a platform where you can accurately price wine, accurately get into an asset class that has actually outperformed the S&P 500 over the past two and a half decades and find an easy way to have your storage managed, fully insured, and have a digital investing experience for a physical asset that was traditionally, you know, usually only available to the top 1% or the ultra wealthy. Super unique idea. I think, I mean, it seems obvious when you say it, but like I've never heard of a company like this before. How did you get the idea? And I guess, where does your interest of wine come in? Yeah. So, um, I had the idea a couple, a uh, couple months ago, I was with my co-founder Brent and, uh, we had actually been, collecting and trading wines for a little bit then. Um, we just were talking about how not user-friendly the entire experience was. We had to go through different brokers to find the right wines, compare prices with over 50 different sites, and then also manage our own third-party storage because we didn't own our own professional wine storage sellers and I doubt many other people do. Um, so we're like, you know, what if there was an easier way? Wouldn't way more people be into this asset class? And that's how VinoVest was born. Um, you know, my interest from it is definitely a personal interest. I, I love drinking wine. Um, I have some family in the wine importing industry as well. So it's something that I've been really familiar with growing up with. And I'd always kind of known the concept of, you know, some of these wine bottles in our cellar are going to get older and more expensive as they age. And um, that's kind of what drives the fundamental value of wine. So tell me a little bit on how it works. I, you, let's say I just know pretty much nothing about investing in wine. I'm not even like I, I, I'm er, earlier in my career. So like I don't even have that much expense, uh, experience investing period. So how, can you kind of explain how this works? Absolutely. The first step is after signing up, you go through a quick quiz and we get information from you about, you know, do you consider yourself conservative, moderate, aggressive? How much money do you think you'd be putting into the platform? What's your investment time horizon? And based on that, we actually have built out software that can automatically generate a customized portfolio of wines for you. Um, so it's perfect for a beginner. They need to know nothing about wine, just a little bit more about their personal investing styles. And based on that, we'll go ahead and source the market price for these wines. We'll then help store them in our uh, fully insured facilities. And as the consumer, you can just look at a play digital investing dashboard and look at your wines appreciate over time. Is it one of these things where like, let's say I wanted to invest in, let's say it's a rare wine. I can't name one. I'm like, I'm personally don't know that much about wine. I think it's awesome that you're, you're tackling this because I know tons of people that do that. But let's say I, 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 I want to invest in a wine. Do you seek out a wine if I want to invest in it? Is it more of like, Hey, here's what you have in inventory and here's what you can invest in. How, how does that work? Great question. So we have two different products. The first one is more of a managed side. It's more for people who they're like, I have $5,000, I have $10,000. I know nothing about wine. Just give me 
a portfolio of wines that can get me the best return. So that's the first version. The second one is kind of like what you're describing. Say, say you do know a little bit more about the space or you want a little bit more control of your portfolio. Um, it's more of like a Robin Hood experience where you can just you know, search for a wine, price it, track it over time, and then buy and sell it. And tell me a little bit about wine as an asset class. I mean, I, the only asset class, there's two asset classes I guess I care about. It's like startups and it's cryptocurrency and, and, and they're very different. And the wine is um, one I haven't heard before, before we met. So can you give me an idea on why someone should invest in wine? What's going on in the industry there? Absolutely. So for high-end wines, they're made to be aged for a long time. And that's what the primary driver of value is. You know, when a wine doesn't reach its full potential until 20, you know, 30, maybe 50 years in the future, there's that inherent appreciation curve where people want to store it, age it, and sit on it as it gets better. Um, obviously, you can't go back in time and make more from the wine from the year 2000. So as time goes on, there's less and less supply as people drink it. So it's supply constraint, finite supply, demand for it goes up over time. And that's how, that's how you know, wine appreciates from like a very, very fundamental level. Of course, there's things like liquidity on secondary markets, brand equity and things like that. But that, um, you know, at a basic, that's, that's how I would explain it. It's, so let's say I wanted to put in, you know, 10K into, and let's say the managed service. Do you, do I own, like these are pretty basic questions on, on, on probably year end, but for me, I just like want to understand better. Do I like own, pieces of a bottle or do I own a bottle and then as what's in that bottle gets worth like is worth more over time appreciates I, I get that upside or literally like what am I actually investing in and if I want to pull out do I take wine do you is it money can you like I guess how does how does that whole process work totally uh so you own the full underlying asset essentially we are a platform that helps you facilitate buying the wine so say if at the end of the day, you wanted to celebrate your birthday and ball out on some nice wine, you could take it off our platform and drink it. If you wanted to liquidate it, we'll then match you with the counterparty and you, you can cash out at any time as well. That's cool. So w let's say I you know, invested in a bunch of wine and I, and I have a big party coming. What Can you tell me like the user experience of getting an actual like if i wanted like one of those bottles that i own um do you ship it do i go to the center like i'm just interested in the logistics behind the, the actual transportation of the, of the wine yeah so we have a global network of storage facilities that we work with um, they're all professionally managed like one of them in england uh, the british royal family actually stores their wine in the same place that we do uh, so they're top-notch fully insured and when you want to get your wine delivered it depends on which warehouse it is, but we'll pretty much automatically match you up with the right third-party logistics provider, get it shipped over to you, or if you want to go visit it in person, you could do that as well. It was the logistics piece, like a kind of a pain in your ass. Cause I feel like you, you, you get into this for the wine and the investing, but then those things that you need to do to, to build that out. So I'm wondering like, do you have much of a logistics background or how do you think about the logistics? Of, of something like that, which seemed like they seemed slightly heavy. I don't know. How do you think about that? Yeah, the first company I built was a food delivery app. So we had to deal with a lot of local logistics. That was more 
time pressing, you know, food. When, when something's five minutes late in the wine world, it's not too bad. But if it's food, someone's really mad. Um, so I do have that logistics background. Thankfully, on a global scale, wine has very, very established supply chain and logistics patterns. It's just very, very fragmented all around the world. So most of the heavy lifting was actually building software that could bring this online. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I have a, a, another question generally about investing. And then I have a few questions around investing. So would you say, like, would it, let's say um, I was just rich, you know, and I'm 0% rich, but if I was and I like, you know, rich people, they invest in their LPs in some VC, VC funds, they invest in the stock market, and then maybe they cut, cut a sliver out for this. Would you say wine as an asset class, it's the same terms when you invest in wine versus investing in bonds and investing in cryptocurrency. Specifically, what I'm what I'm wondering is like, do you know what the word cost basis means? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when someone is thinking about their asset allocation, um, and especially with things outside of the traditional market, so things that are not stocks and bonds, right? You have a ton of options when it comes to alternatives, um, and I think it definitely depends on where you are. But say. If you are investing half of all your alternatives into something extremely risky like crypto, it probably helps to have something a lot more stable like wine, which is very long-term, you know, it's very low volatility historically, um, you know, something like, something like wine or real estate to balance that out. Um, so it is a matter of personal preference, but in terms of how I would market wine to an investor looking from an asset allocation perspective, it would be that it's proven to be an uncorrelated asset to the market. It's also proven to be very, very strong during market downturns as a hedge. And in terms of the return profile, you can get anywhere from like eight to 12% net of fees. You know, it's not something that's gonna make you rich, you know, 10X return like crypto, but it's also very good on a wealth preservation strategy. This is, this is awesome just because I clearly am not super well versed in investing. And like I would have you know, before we before we met, I wouldn't have thought you could invest in wine. I didn't know wine was an asset class. I'm curious for you, is there a lot of education on your end? Just telling people that like, hey, you actually can invest in wine? Like what's that education process like? Yeah, I think that's a big component of what we're trying to do at VinoVest because most of our customers right now, you know, they they're like you. They knew nothing about investing in wine. They didn't even know wine was investable, or even if they did, they didn't know where to start. Um, so I think it starts with, you know, being in the right communities and the right channels where people are talking about investing in general, personal finance in general. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about new and novel asset classes or non-traditional asset classes, that's where we can kind of insert ourselves into the conversation because, you know, once you talk about it for a little bit, it makes a lot of sense. It checks off a lot of boxes when you're talking about things that you want to invest in. Um, and in terms of the risk profile, the return profile, um, yeah, it's a pretty attractive asset class. And I'm curious on location. So before we started recording, you mentioned you're based in LA. I'm a big fan of LA. I think there's a lot going on there. But based, even though I have limited knowledge on wine, I do know that like a little north of San Francisco is like the mecca of wine. So I'm curious, do you make a lot of trips to the like, the, the the vineyards are, are, you know, up there or are you able to operate fully in LA and you just have resources around the country? I guess, how do you get to the wine specifically? Yeah. The great thing is 
with technology, we're able to be fully remote. Um, that's something I love about building this company. Um, you know, wine is global. Most of the great wines in the world are in France and Italy and Spain. And uh, our distribution networks and our connections had to be built with that global scale in mind from day one. Um, this might be a weird question because like, I don't know, against your incentives to talk about, but I'm curious, like, I've never heard of, like, are you pretty, is this pretty much a blue ocean for you? Like who, who is someone else that helps people invest in wine? And, and like, I don't know, I guess I think it's such a giant opportunity because I have so many people that love wine. Hell, like, I love the idea of wine and I do drink it sometimes and I, I would even invest when I'm financially able to. So I'm just curious, like, is it a blue ocean for you? Um, not quite a blue ocean. There's, there's a lot of players in the space, but I don't think anyone's been taking that approach for accessibility. You know, wine, um, especially high-end wine, kind of has the connotation of being pretty snobby, you know, more for the rich people or kind of old money. And that uh, it's, it does seem to be um, kind of permeating with the wine investment solution. So today you can invest in a wine hedge fund, but you have to be an accredited investor or you have to have a certain minimum amount. And there's lockup periods and how long they can hold your funds with. Um, and same with the current solutions. You know, there, there are a few people who are trying to do something like us, but um, frankly, it is, it's just not there in terms of usability. I don't think anybody, unless they are obsessed with wine, would go through the hoops and hurdles that like Brent and I went through to become wine collectors and investors unless, um, unless they had a lot of perseverance. Yeah. That's something that I, I, I've learned personally and also learned from the podcast that you can't really compete with someone who's just genuinely interested in something. And we'll just keep doing like, we'll keep going through the idea maze when no one else will just get out of pure interest um, in, in the, in the area, which is cool. Um, I want to focus a little bit on, um, on LA and because I feel like I talk to a lot of founders in SF and a lot of founders in New York. So I actually like, I feel like I have a good idea of what it's like starting a company in either of those two cities, but I don't talk to as many in LA. So I'm kind of curious, like, are you pretty tapped into the tech ecosystem there? Like, how have you liked building, uh, building your company there? I just love and any information you have on the startup scene or tech scene. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love living in LA. Um, not just from a talent perspective, but just from a lifestyle lifestyle perspective, you know, you have the beach, you have, perfect weather and you have a lot of other industries that are exciting that are not just tech. You know, you have real estate, you have obviously Hollywood fashion. Um, and I think that's really cool. You know, it's not just one dimensional. Um, and in terms of talent, you know, there's amazing companies here, Snapchat, um, ByteDance, you know, the, the parent company at TikTok is based here, um, their U S office headspace. Um, so that's actually the, those three companies are, where some of our founding team members used to work. So, you know, there's a ton of talent. I think everyone's just generally happier here in terms of the lifestyle. See, Phoenix isn't, isn't a, in LA, but it is in LA in the realm of just like, you know, a great lifestyle. Uh, like, damn, I can work super hard here, you know, for like 12, 13 hours a day or whatever. And I can totally live a separate life when I'm not doing that you know, with my friends and my girlfriend and I can do whatever I want. And there's no, like, you're not, like, you're not stuck totally. in this box where you can't escape your work. I, I couldn't, I could never do that. Yeah. And I, I love that aspect about having that balance and just being able to completely unplug. And, you know, you can, 
go a weekend in LA and no one will even know what crypto is or give a shit about what crypto is. And same with wine, you know? Um, so it's, it's nice to be able to have that separation. Do you know a founder in LA named Steve Odell? He started Tenzo T. No, I, I don't think I've ever met Steve. Man, Steve, he might be one of my favorite episodes I've ever done on the podcast out of like, I don't know, 120 or so. And he's based in LA. Um, he's just this, like you talk to him for 10 minutes and you're just like, I take on the world. Uh, he just has that kind of energy, which it would just totally, totally meet. Maybe you can drink some his power Tenzo tea and he can invest in some wine. <laughs> um, so this is a call out, Steve. I want to meet you. Yeah. For, oh my gosh. That guy is, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I'm very, I feel, it's so funny over the, over the podcast over the last year and, or, you know, in a few months I've been doing that. I definitely talk about like just random guests randomly. And I wonder if like people actually like, like I wonder if people, Steve will get attention now. Like who the hell is? Anyways. Um, so what you mentioned lifestyle and a little bit of like, you didn't say work-life balance, but you kind of alluded to something like that. I'm curious when you're not, um, when you're not working on, you know, vests, um, what are things that you're either doing or thinking about or, you know, pondering, I guess, outside of, of your startup, what is your life? That you, what do you think about technologies? I'd love to hear anything like that. Totally. Um, I think for me, um, thinking about some like life's best moments, it's always been good friends, good food, good wine. Um, and when I was starting VinoVest, I was thinking a lot about kind of this work-life balance and it definitely needed to be something that I had a personal passion for. Um, so the good thing is I love wine. I love exploring restaurants and it kind of just goes hand in hand together. So my girlfriend and I, we cook a lot. We love to try new recipes. We love to you know, travel and visit new restaurants. Um, and you know, a good thing with being in California is there's a lot of amazing wineries to visit. Uh, so that's something that we, we like to do and plan trips for as well. Nice. Um, is what, what are some unique places? Um, I want to like focus on LA like a, a little more just because I, I'm trying to learn more about it myself. Um, are there like obviously Northern California, um, above San Francisco, North of San Francisco, there's a bunch of, of you know, it's like wine village. I'm probably scaring that up, but it's like wine County is what it's called. Like, is there a, um, what, what is there anything like that? in LA and, or I guess what I'm really asking is what areas of LA, of LA do you like, um, whether it's like an entertainment district or like top of the Hollywood sign, like, I guess, what are some, uh, I don't know, areas of LA that you, that are special to you? Yeah. I mean, LA is massive. I mean, uh, downtown LA will always have a special place in my heart because I went to USC. That's where my girlfriend and I met. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a really exciting spot, you know, with the fashion district and the arts district next to there. Um, and when you're talking about like wine places, um, just two hours up north of Santa Barbara, a ton of amazing wineries out there. I think it's about like maybe 200 something wineries. Um, so that's, that's a place that we love to just kind of spend a weekend at. Um, and yeah, I, I live on the West side in Culver city, ton of cool stuff going on there too. Is there, I hear from afar of this like Silicon beach where you have like five or six or seven beaches that are connected on the coast that just create this like tech, you know, Mecca. Um, is, do you, are you anywhere near Silicon beach or is that like a thing that doesn't like 
truly exist. I, 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 uh, I'm curious to know. I'll switch the topic in a second. I just like this last question on LA. Um, what's, what's Silicon Beach? I think that's a pretty nifty marketing phrase. Um, there are a lot of startups in like the Santa Monica slash Venice area, which is all like beachfront. Um, and there's definitely like a lot of, um, you know, kind of the local like Snap headquarters, Google headquarters, they're all pretty close to that. Um, so I'd say like that's what you would characterize that at. Um, but yeah, I think it's more so like you have Silicon Valley and reporters or people in the marketing industry want to make a Silicon X for a new for a new city. And, you know, it fits well, you know, uh, but, but yeah, I wouldn't say there's like a place you can point to on the map be like, I'm in Silicon Beach right now. That's so funny you say that. About five years ago, there was a pretty big push in Arizona for a Silicon de- Desert. And there's just a giant group that just like totally like poo-pooed it and just like haunted mm-hmm. it pretty much made anyone safe who said that feel really bad. Not in a bad way, but just like, no, we're not a derivative of, of SF. We're something else. Um, so I, I, I totally, uh, totally understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to go a little bit into your back. So your background, obviously you have some experience, especially like you've already started something like this or something in, uh, in the logistics. So I'm curious, how has your previous experience you think prepared you well to work on, on this startup? And I'd love to just hear what are some of the similarities and or differences from starting your first company versus starting this company? Yeah. So my first company on by now, um, we were a college food delivery app. Um, you know, we similarly, we raised venture funding. Um, we're able to grow a remote team as well. Um, and I think the, the biggest things that I learned was just based on communication and growing a team without being in an office. Um, I really loved doing that. I felt like it gave me the opportunity to meet and work with people that, you know, I otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to just given geographic constraints. And, um, you know, being able to communicate effectively throughout, you know, through using modern technology. So um, right now, you know, our team, you know, we have some team members in New York and L.A. And uh, even in L.A., we don't go into an office every day. We, you know, we work out of our apartments. We have our own lives. And, you know, obviously with how awful L.A. traffic is, we get a lot more of our lives back just by being remote. So um, I think that's there's some kind of key learnings, which is organizational building that I've had and then um, you know obviously with with fundraising as well um, you learn a lot of lessons with rejection how to deal with investors how to get the most out of your investors as well and um, I think it definitely gets easier the second go around how do you get the most out of your investors um, it, like once obviously they're invested so they want the incentives are totally aligned um, but like do you have any strategic or not even strategic, like, do you have any tactics for someone that just raised the seed round on how they can best get the most out of their investors to help them with whatever they need help with? Yeah, I would say that investors are generally there to be helpful, but they know that as an early stage founder, you're really busy. They don't want to impose. So when you need help, you have to ask. You can't assume that they know your problems. And I think another thing that I learned is that it's okay to tell them that you have problems. I think a lot of times, entrepreneurs are worried about only sharing the good things, right? Um, a lot of times shit's on fire and you need to be able to leverage your network because it's not like they're going to 
what, like uninvest in you. So like, what's the worst thing that could happen? So I would definitely just be very, very forthcoming, ask for help and be vulnerable as a founder. And let's go pre-closing of round. If someone has, let's say they have great traction, like they should be able to raise some money. Um, and, but let's say this is actually really realistic for, for someone like me or someone outside of, you know, one of the hubs. Let's say you got a rocket ship based in Nebraska. Um, and, but let's say they have, you know, a warm intro to NEDC in San Francisco. What strategies, or LA or New York, what strategies would you suggest to them to help find that lead investor or help secure, secure the bag and, and raise that funding. I would say you got to hustle. Like you, you just got to know someone who knows someone and like start having conversations. You know, you got to be able to leverage other founders because they've been in your position before in the past and they've got investors and um, you know, investors get a ton of cold emails, but the emails that they'll read are from their portfolio founders. Um, so that I think, you know, it's, it's the, the best tried and true strategy that will work for anybody regardless of where they live because you can always reach out to another founder on LinkedIn, on Twitter, or whatever. And as long as you have a compelling story um, or what you're building is relevant or interesting to them, I think that you can get, you can get a good shot at a conversation. And once you get a good shot at a conversation, you can maybe ask for a few intros. That's uh, it's it's one one of the reasons I originally started this podcast was like kind of for what, for what you just said like the first like I don't know fifteen twenty um guests were all YC companies because I really wanted to get into like I was like it's probably a bad motivation but at the time I'm like YC like that that's it um, now I mean it, this is definitely more like you know very fun to do I don't really have any like I'm just doing it because it's fun I don't have any like secret motivation or anything like that that's how it started um. And I, I do think that if more people, more founders focused on networking with other founders or just trying to go cold with investors, it would yield maybe better returns. But at the same time, something that I'm thinking about a lot is like, why, like why is a cold email thought of way lower than a warm intro? Because founders aren't investors themselves. So it's like, is, is the, it's like a, it's a high level question, but like if a founder, intros another founder to a VC. A VC will look at them better than a cold email, but a founder is not a good investor, right? A founder is a founder. So I guess like, can you kind of explain that to me a little bit on how maybe VCs value warm intros that they're cold emails, even though warm intros aren't coming from other investors? Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah, I think, I think just based on the volume of requests that they get, and I, you know, I haven't been a VC, this is just me speculating. But imagine you get 200 emails in your inbox a day. You just can't physically read that many and a lot of them will get caught in spam because you haven't interacted with them before. So it's just kind of like a brute force quality filter. And sure, maybe they will miss out on some deals, but um, for the ones that they do get intro to, it comes from a trusted source, right? Um, you know, referrals are always stronger in any industry and I think that's how they have to operate because VC is such, such a relationship and referral driven business. I totally agree with you uh, on that. I just think it's, it's a little unfortunate to like for people that don't have that connect, but at the same time, you just got to hustle. Like, like if you, if you're wherever you live, like there's this thing called the internet and if you use the internet wisely, you can get in touch with whoever you want. <laughs> exactly. Like we had no connections before and we got in touch with the internet. So I think that's another thing like VCs, 
um, you know, maybe they want to see founders work a little bit harder to get that intro. Anyone can scrape an email address, but to actually put in the time to talk to a founder and then to actually learn if that VC may be the right fit to ask that founder for an intro. It's, you know, it's quite a few steps and, you know, hopefully, hopefully it gets rewarded. Man, being a founder is so interesting. I feel like there's no other quote unquote job in the world. But it's like founders need to just the a billion different jobs at different points in time. They just need to know when to wear certain hats and when to hack, when to hustle, when to think smarter. And it's just like, it's just, if you find a good founder, that's a great, you know, great at what they do. Like it's so magical to watch them do their thing. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely an extremely tough, but it's 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 a rewarding job. I, I love being a founder. What what is this? All, your answer to this, I'm sure. You know, I've been a founder in the past as well, so I feel like this could change. This will change over time. But like right now, what's probably like the hardest thing about being a founder, uh, or more so like the biggest challenge that you have uh, uh, being a founder of this company? I think for me is being able to deal with a lot of uncertainty right now you know our concept is brand new we are in a brand new market that we're trying to expand and grow and um you know we have a lot of really talented people who are spending a lot of time working on this problem so it's like are we working on the right things can are our initial hypotheses even right and i think it's about pushing forward getting those small wins every day and be able to methodically and consistently prove out these hypotheses. And, you know, at that part, it's just about having consistent progress and momentum. So um, I think that progress is definitely something that, you know, you earn every day. It's not just kind of like a, you know, product market fit is not just that, that magic switch that goes off. It's the accumulation of so many tests and failures and learnings and more tests. Yeah, it's this is an analogy that I think is so great, which is like to find the path of finding product market fit is pushing a boulder up the hill. And the path after product market fit is chasing the boulder as it's rolling down before you know it crashes and burns. Like oh. like before it rolls too quickly and you just like lose control of it. <laughs> yeah, so we're definitely definitely in that pushing up the hill phase right now. So hopefully we can get across. Would you say it with your last company, if you're open to sharing, like, did you experience product market fit with that? And if so, I'd love to hear about it. If not, um, what did you learn about the push up that you're maybe applying to, to this company? Yeah, I would say in certain markets, we had product market fit. So with us, you know, we're on different college campuses, the vibe of each college campus, the way it's set up, the student body, the, you know, availability of restaurants around the campus it was all very very different so on ones that were working you know it was taking off we were getting amazing market penetration people were signing up the drivers were making enough money the customers were you know getting their food in on time but on other markets it was like night and day like we'd have you know worry about even enough people signing up for shifts well this person orders on the app and no one picks it up would i have to go and get on my bike and do the delivery um, so, uh, we definitely experienced both at times and, uh, it's definitely a, a, a night and day experience. For sure. Um, so for Vino Best, right now, what are you spending your, your, your time on? What are you thinking about? 
um, you know, you're in like the startup phase of the company. Uh, so what, well, how about, I guess two, two types of questions. When you first decided to start Vino Invest, what was the decision that made you decide that you wanted to go full time? So like, what was the trade that was like, oh, leap. And then um, now that you are full time, like what's, uh, what's the next month to year look like? And then we'll go a little more longer term. Yeah, so I think that that full-time decision was when we had our initial MVP built out and we actually got that first customer. You know, we saw money come in the bank and I'm like, all right, you know, I would be doing this person a, dis a disservice if I did not and my team did not go, you know, completely dedicated to this. Um, so that was that moment. Um, and I think for us, and at least in the next month, is making sure these early customers are happy. We want to make sure that A, they sign up, they love the platform, they feel comfortable putting their money in, they want to put more money in over time as they get more comfortable with VinoVest, with the asset class, and also that no one is leaving. And, uh, you know, so far we've been able to, you know, at least keep everybody on the platform and we're, you know, wanting to, wanting to encourage that behavior. Yeah, definitely. And then let's go big for a second. Uh, and look out a decade and let's assume every VC that you want to invest, invest every, everything just happens how it's supposed to happen. You know what, at this point, what, uh, what would you have built? I mean, like what's the vision and if it gets as big as it can be, like, what does that look like? Yeah, that's always a, that's always a fun question because it's something that I you know think about a lot, dream about too. And I think, if VinoVest reaches its full potential, um, it's going to be a way for anybody to tap into not just the asset class of wine, but other physical assets that have similar characteristics, you know, whether it be whiskey, rum, sake, um, and also not just for the retail side, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of institutional investors that want to be able to invest in wine, but there's no way to do that. So we want to build out financial products. We want to build out you know, ways for people to invest in wine futures, wine derivatives, margin trade wine, wine options, and start building out and making this market much more sophisticated, which will also help with the liquidity of market um, and really, really just expand the potential of what wine can be and how people look at other asset classes that are not traditional today. I love that. I love that last point in is I think is young people. I mean, I'm a young person. This is why I'm saying this, but I think it's like we learn more about investing and what you're able to do and what you're able to invest in. Like we're just going to invest more. Like it's not as fun, you know, and I feel like our, our parents and maybe their parents didn't have the internet, you know, for, for some of this stuff, but we're growing up with the internet and we're, we're you know, we grew up with the internet. So it's, the opportunities are, are cool. And to make that happen, to make the last, your, your vision happen, you're going to need some help. Uh, you know, you need help from customers, from employees, from investors, and maybe you'll get some help from a forward-thinking founders listener. So the last question I have for you is what, what is an ask you have for the forward-thinking founders community? If, if, if you needed something from anyone listening, uh, the, the floor is yours. How can we help? Yeah, I love that. Um, so to the community, you know, we're still at such an early nascent stage. And I think what we want to do is to be able to effectively communicate the value that we're bringing to you, the con potential consumer. So I would love if you could come on our website, 
beanovest.co. Check it out. You know, please just email me if you have any feedback. And that would be that would be asked. I'd love to love to get you to learn more about fine wine as an asset. And then the true, true last question that I have is what is this might be too much pressure, I don't know, but I have to ask, what is your favorite wine? What's your favorite bottle of wine? If you had one of the wine to invest in, what would you invest in? Oh, favorite bottle of wine. Um, so I'd probably say it's the one that I shared with my co-founder when we were like, damn, this is good wine. And we just had the idea of actually starting a company around it. It's a bottle of 2016 Austin Hope. It's from Paso Robles, California, which is in Central Coast. It's a really, really just delicious, um, primarily Cabernet Sauvignon wine. Um, so yeah, it definitely is a, a special wine. It's actually a wine that we gift to every new employee when they start. And we kind of tell them a little about the founding story. That is some serious ROI on the, that, that wine bottle that you bought. That's awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Honestly, I think your product is, is super unique. Never heard anything like it. I think it's awesome. And I think, you know, I think you have a lot of great things ahead of you. And I appreciate you sharing your story on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot, Matt. It was a pleasure.